Welcome to Rocking Your Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, everybody knows that norms matter. But how exactly? What are the precise mechanisms of cultural persistence? Drawing on my qualitative research in India, Mexico, Morocco, Zambia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Italy and Turkey, I would like to suggest eight ways in which culture perpetuates gender inequalities. We'll start off in the home, and perhaps controversially, I'll suggest that loving mothers reproduce patriarchal sons. Then we'll think about how men amass advantage and demand respect, as well as concern for social approval. Building on that, I'd suggest that male-dominated spaces are seen as lecherous and unsafe. Dissent is suppressed. Women may fall victim to despondency traps, while cultural celebrations naturalize inequalities. I'll finish by discussing the role of religion. So this post, this podcast, focuses on persistence. My next podcast will be on disruption. So I'm going to discuss uh, stories from a couple of my interviews, and I'll change all the names for anonymity, of course. So let's crack on with loving mothers. Now... Some people deny that culture matters. They think that female employment is mechanically suppressed by too much housework. But that's only half the story. Women actually spend more time on household chores in countries where female domesticity is widely endorsed. This holds even for countries at similar levels of economic development. Culturally constructed ideals of motherhood raise the volume of care work, making it difficult to combine with employment. In the absence of attractive job offers, most women in North Africa, Anatolia, the Middle East and South Asia remain at home. Loving mothers care intensely for their children, especially their sons. Boys may never learn to cook for themselves, let alone others. 47% of Indian men have never seen their fathers do any domestic work. It thus remains stereotyped as feminine. The overwhelming majority of Indian men believe that a woman's most important role is to take care of her home and cook for her family. Employed women in India actually receive fewer matrimonial offers. If men feel entitled, resistance may incite violence. In Istanbul, Okan asked his wife Zainab to make him a cup of tea. She said no. Okan became violent and beat her mercilessly. Let me quote from a couple of my interviews. So here is Sunil, Sunil from Bangalore. He says, I didn't learn to cook until I moved out. It's a pity it leads to unhealthy relationships where guys expect their partners to play the role their mothers used to play. Hinal in Gujarat said, A woman tends to at least two children throughout her life. Her child and the child's father. In Fatima, over in Fez, in Morocco, she prepared this wonderful, amazing spread for iftar, which we enjoyed, but none of her families expressed any appreciation. And she said, They treat me like I'm a maid. Women themselves may view care as an expression of love. As Bhattacharya observes, and I quote, Many women find greater love, social recognition, and self-worth in being caregivers, 
thereby steadily withdrawing from the world of paid employment. This helps explain why Indian female employment plummets not with childbirth, but marriage. As loving devotion secures their son's loyalty, mothers may then exercise authority over their daughters-in-law. In India, Morocco and Turkey, women sometimes detailed how their husbands remained mute while his mother was abusive. Vianne, a cleaner in Mardin, was beaten, abused and used like a maid by in-laws, while her husband remained silent. Pregnancy was extremely painful, yet they all dismissed her concerns. The fetus, it later transpired, had been dead for a month. And I quote Vianne, she says, This is an exaggeration. But if his mother told me, told him to throw me into the fire, he would. Okay, now let me come to my second mechanism. Men amass advantage and expect respect. In patrilineal, patrilocal societies, baby boys are celebrated, signs of the family line. They grow up knowing they will inherit the family home and business. 83% of Indian men are permanently rooted in their homes. They are forever surrounded by their kin. Growing up, sons enjoy far greater freedoms to study afar, explore new neighbourhoods and hang out with their friends. By navigating to new places and building trusted friendships, men become savvy and street smart. Across all societies, groups who predominate in socially valued domains are stereotyped as more competent and deserving of status. In countries where men monopolise those prestigious positions, they continue to be revered. Pakistani women make garment workers, may not even question gender wage gaps, because they presume men to be more competent. Men, meanwhile, become accustomed to deference and react aggressively to insubordination. Now let me quote Bhavaka in Bangalore. She says, if a woman at the office interjects, they'd say, shh! We're talking. Accepting authority from a woman is a challenge for them because they've been raised to believe that they're the centre of the universe. You sit back and a woman will always be subservient to you. Babaka says. Now here's Ilith in Istanbul. She says, it was a boys club. I was totally excluded, passed over for promotion. What about Rosarin in Mardin? She says, if my mother... Kurdish mother. My mother spoke out. The uncles would just say, why are you speaking? Know your place. In North, but not South India, women with outside earnings are more likely to experience domestic violence. Likewise, Bangladeshi women who join savings groups or work in garment factories are at heightened risk of domestic violence. To preserve their dominance, Bangladeshi men may try to control women's earnings. Some women try to earn a little money through home-based work, but they remain firmly under family control. My third mechanism is concern for social approval. Job scarcity, endemic precarity and scant state protection reinforce heavy reliance on kin. This necessitates concern for social approval. Even if someone privately criticises inequalities, they may nevertheless conform for fear of ostracism. Since no family wants to deviate from presumed ideals and risk alienation, 
all remain trapped in a negative feedback loop in which women remain close to the home. When polled, 83% of Turkish men say women have the right to work outside the home. But that support is radically underestimated. This is pluralistic ignorance. In Morocco, many young women emphasize strict policing by their brothers. If young men are only employed precariously and yet want to gain social respect, they may guard their sisters' reputations in order to preserve their own. Let me quote from Puja in Haryana. She says, Everything is so dependent on social relations, contacts, helping each other, solving problems. Capitalism is so entrenched in social networks. These are built through reciprocation of favours, attending each other's events and buying gifts. We still need that community. This is why we have all these annoying aunties when you're getting harassed. Anya in Mumbai said, In India, there is a lot of fear and anxiety. If you rock the boat, you will be poor. If you speak out, you'll be a social outcast. They don't want to face the consequences of going against the grain, said Anya. Shami in Bihar said, he's given you an example of gossip. It's shameful. Why are you not providing for your wife? People will say, if, if your wife works. So that is my third mechanism. Concern for social approval. My fourth mechanism is that male-dominated spaces are seen as lecherous. If businesses, buses and bureaucracies are overwhelmingly male, they may be seen as unsafe and inappropriate. Men lecture with impunity. Good girls stay at home, while those who step out are subjected to slander. Girls may even restrict themselves fearing sexual assault, shame and ostracism. Shame is so... Surveillance, sorry. Surveillance is so strong in rural Bihar that young women may even relish open defecation as their only opportunity to get some fresh air, escape their in-laws and speak to their friends in privacy. In rural Odisha and Uttar Pradesh, women, and especially wealthy women, have very few friends. This limits their opportunities to share ideas, critique unfairness and build alliances outside the family. Women who venture out may be treated as prostitutes, vulnerable to abuse. A FIFA, a tea seller, said, When I sell tea, some men annoy me. They sometimes touch my body and harass me. End quote. Since harassment is common knowledge, women who work in public bring shame on all their kin. And let me quote some extracts from my interviews. So this is Isha in Delhi. She says, Our national capital is unsafe for women, no matter what caste or community you are from. And if anything happens, shame on you. Blame on you. Let me quote from Leila in Fez. Sexual harassment is a real problem. Walking to the university, I'll be harassed maybe five times. A taxi driver once wouldn't let me in, uh, leave the car until I'd given him my number. He even rang it, had my phone to check. Men grabbed my arm, asking for attention. A policeman asked to see me, my ID and then said, What a pity you're not older. Advika in Chennai said, Your life is over, ruined forever, my parents told me. If there's a rumour, then you're not marriageable. You're not respected. It's over, said Advika. Farah in Rabat, when she went to travel, her father said, you travel with my face, i.e. his honour. 
If sexual assault is regarded as as bad as death, victims may keep quiet. 73% of survivors in Bangladesh remain silent. Many women told me that they'd been abused or assaulted, yet never told anyone. Lechery thus persists with impunity. For Delhi's middle-class young men, Eve teasing is just a bit of fun. They resent women's encroachment onto their turf and eye any women on the streets as fair game. In urban neighbourhoods with high levels of sexual harassment, women are far less likely to seek outside employment. While men pursue Delhi's finest colleges, women prioritise safety. Media reporting of sexual violence further inflames these fears, suppressing female labour supply outside the home. The Delhi 2012 gang rape amplified widespread concerns. Many women I interviewed abandoned opportunities to study because they were scared of going to Delhi. Let me quote from Lakshmi in Bangalore. She says, After 2012, we felt helpless and scared to go out after dark. I didn't want to go to Delhi to study, nor did any of my friends. And I I spoke to so many young women who told me precisely that. In Mumbai, women are not supposed to loiter in public. Likewise, in Dhaka, good Muslim women avoid spaces where they, where they might encounter Namaram people, i.e. those people they should marry. Many women in Turkey, Iran, India, Morocco told me that their mothers forbid them from visiting their friends' homes. Farah, who's now a 55-year-old cleaner, she was never permitted to go to the market alone. Their cafe in their small Kurdish town was exclusively male. Stepping out was shameful and inappropriate. Men would stare. Even if Indian parents send their daughters to a college or faraway factories, they often choose those colleges with strict curfews. Priya said, I cannot leave my house alone in Haryana without a male escort. Within three minutes, someone will call my mother. All eyes are on you. You blame yourself. To preserve family honour, Esmeray and her friends in Midyat were kept apart from men. They knew nothing of men outside their own families. So, when along came a charming suitor, Esmeray was flattered by his sweet words of affection. She raced into marriage. But that first year, he beat her seven times. Her mother's life was just the same. I share that example because as long as parents fear for their daughter's honour and safety public spaces will remain male-dominated. If women themselves are afraid, they may be nervous to venture out and thus struggle to gain the confidence, capacities and friendships that help men navigate social and economic relationships. Women get left behind. Okay, here is my fourth mechanism. Dissent is suppressed. So girls are taught to put others first to police themselves and protect family honour. Since marriages are the linchpin of kinship networks, daughters are socialised to please their in-laws and preserve marriages at all costs. Good girls, in inverted commas, learn to stay quiet. Let me give you a tale from Rajasthan. So I was chatting to a maid called Prem Jyoti. Whenever I asked her opinion... Prem Jyoti gave the same answer. It's tradition. Never once did she express her own judgment. 
men eating first and having far greater freedoms were all accepted as immutable. Like many other Indian women, she had never been encouraged to debate or critique independently. If women passively adjust, men learn that they can get away with almost anything. Once, in a violent fit of rage, Premjoti's husband tied her up and starved her for five days. None of his family intervened to save her. Dissent is also suppressed through shame and intimidation. Let me quote from Parisa from Iran. I felt very ashamed when I lost my virginity. After that, I was always friends with boys who had problems because I didn't consider myself worthy of a good relationship. Then there's Yildaz in um, Istanbul. She says, I was constantly ashamed of my body. I felt like my body was not my own. When I was going through puberty, I was constantly told to cover up, to wear bigger clothes, to shut my legs. My father made me feel so disgusting. And this affected my sexual relationships because I felt like my body was not my own. Sonia in Delhi said, Moral authorities put fear in your head. Mothers often say, If you do this, I will tell your papa. Then Dila, a 74-year-old woman named Konya, she said, I lived in constant fear, always walking on eggshells. The entire family was abusive. They ordered me to work, constantly criticized me and never showed me appreciation. I wasn't allowed to leave the house alone. So that is how dissent is suppressed, both by teaching girls to sacrifice and also through shame and intimidation. Now let me get to one of my favourite concepts, despondency traps. So if men and women seldom see successful defiance, they may underestimate why the support and the possibility of cultural change. Resigned to their fates, they may endure rather than resist. And that sustains a negative feedback loop. Let me quote from Chakrika in Delhi. She says, my friends are very controlled by their husbands. You have to dance to their tune. If she's 15 minutes late, he gets mad. It's very normalized in our culture. Here's a 19-year-old from Rajasthan who saw male violence as inevitable and inescapable. She says, live or die, you stay in your house. There's no chance of exit. Let me tell you a story about Asana. So three months after her wedding, Asana already feels trapped. She has done everything properly, in inverted commas. She's veiled since puberty, she's preserved her virginity, she's married into prosperity, and she obliges her in-laws every instruction. But she's incredibly sad, really sad. Her husband shows zero affection. He never makes her feel wanted. Her social life revolves around her mother-in-law, whose friends provide streams of unsolicited advice. Get the grandfather's jacket and shoes as he's ready to leave the flat, she's told. What does she do? She smiles, she listens, and she shimmers like a statue. Her wedding gold on proud display. Like others in religiously conservative Konya, her husband denies her permission to work or to visit friends. She is filled with regret. But Aishno feels resigned to this life. That that's it for her now. A young, beautiful, clever woman feels that's it. That's how it's going to be forever.
Okay. Now, my penultimate mechanism is how cultural celebrations naturalize inequalities. You may be wondering, why do so many women marry despite these high risks of abuse and control? Because, I would say first and foremost, marriage and motherhood are still celebrated as crowning achievements. Roxana, who's now 37, and her friends in small-town Iran had one overriding objective, to get married and take care of their husbands. With relatives asking incessantly, even those who are privately critical, those left on the shelf soon feel like failures. Mira in Delhi said to me, a single woman is constantly pestered about being unmarried. It would have been intolerable to live in India as a single woman past 35, she said. Weddings are the big important thing, the sign of making it. Okay, now here is my final mechanism, religion. If scripture reveals God's word, and deviance is met with eternal punishment, it becomes rational to impose strict regulations. Without a culture of dissent, sacrosanct teachings go unquestioned. Piety then becomes necessary for social approval. If female employment risks impropriety and jeopardizes one's place in heaven, then labour supply only rises when wages are so exceptionally high so as to provide sufficient compensation. Religiosity thus weighs into what I call the honour-income trade-off. You know, if you're super religious, the earnings have to be so high for it to be worthwhile. That's if you think that it's female employment or impropriety. Let me quote from um, a man who's a Muslim in Dharavi, India's biggest slum. He says... Earth is just an examination centre. What really matters is the afterlife. We will be judged. We have to account for our activities. If a woman moves in public, she may be sexually harassed or pursue an extramarital affair. If she commits adultery, then the husband will also be punished in the afterlife. Life on earth is nothing. So pursuing material gains now pales in comparison to the afterlife. Here's a quote from Farah in Rabat. She said, I used to be a Muslim. My husband used to tell me that if I disobeyed him, then God would hate and punish me. I believe this. In India, Muslim women are less likely to participate in the labour force and earn money. Though actually no less likely to make decisions. 67% of Hindu and 80% of Muslim women, Indians, um, so that's Indians in total, uh, believe it's very important to stop women in their community from marrying outside their religion. There's an interesting survey of Facebook users. In Pakistan, they find that Pakistani Facebook users who pray daily and endorse religious absolutism are much more likely to think that men have the right to beat their wives and refuse permission to work. Strict Wahhabism has been power-charged by oil wealth. Indian return migrants from Saudi Arabia are much more likely to say that a man should have the finer world, more tolerant of gender-based violence, and more likely to blame a woman if she gets molested after dark. After Hindu-Muslim riots in India, 
Some communities have tightened surveillance, dress codes and curfews. Islamic organisations have also gained influence by providing crucial relief. Communal violence actually seems to have exacerbated pre-existing gender inequalities. And that's consistent with a wider body of evidence suggesting that when people feel under siege, they seek strength through unity, want norm violators to be punished, and then gravitate towards supernatural punishment. So, in summary, for what have I learned in all my years of studying patriarchy? Well, I would suggest that cultural preferences can reinforce a negative feedback loop. If female earnings are too paltry to compensate for the loss of male honour, then women remain dependent on patriarchal guardians. Men's far greater freedoms enable them to amass advantage, become revered as knowledgeable authorities, dominate public spaces and lecture at women with impunity. While many women are privately critical, their encroachments may trigger stares, harassment and backlash. Honour is preserved through strict guardrails, which inhibit collective critique and defiance. And so women specialise in caregiving, which in turn breeds patriarchal entitlements. If you made it all this way, thank you very much for listening. I'm Dr Alice Evans. And this is Rocking Our Priors. Take care.